0: Advertising fraud occurs when a brand pays for an advertisement online and that advertisement is not shown to an actual human. The advertisement ends up being shown to an automated bot account that has been created to view ads. Advertising fraud is rampant on the internet. It's not possible to know how much money is lost to fraud, but the costs are in the billions of dollars. Praneet Sharma and Shalin Shalindar are the founders of Method Media Intelligence, a company that builds solutions around improving advertising quality. In previous shows, Praneet and Shalin have described the online advertising ecosystem in detail. They've told stories of bot farms, replay attacks, ad tech companies. In today's episode, Praneet and Shalin return to the show to discuss how advertising fraud is getting worse, not better. Praneet and Shalin worked with BuzzFeed reporter Craig Silverman to produce some of the remarkable findings about mobile advertising fraud, which Craig came on the show to talk about a few weeks ago. The mobile advertising fraud schemes account for hundreds of millions of dollars of theft every year. So it's great to have Praneet and Shalin back on the show, and I hope you enjoy it. Shalindar and Praneet Sharma. Guys, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for
1: having us, Jeff. Thanks.
0: You're the founders of Method Media Intelligence. You've both been on the show. shalin has been on several different times. And I love having you guys on because you are very well acquainted with advertising fraud. And we'll talk about plenty of new material. But just in case there are people who are listening who haven't heard the previous episodes about advertising fraud why don't you start by just giving us an overview of what advertising fraud is?
1: The kind of universal umbrella definition of ad fraud, there's two sides. One is the industry accepted version, which ad fraud as the umbrella term covers non-human traffic, lack of viewability, and also brand safety violations. For example, you know, an ad appearing next to content that can be deemed unsavory or inappropriate, uh, like a car ad next to a news story about a car crash or airline ad next to a news story about an airplane crash. So those types of things. But what we focus on is making sure that advertisers are getting the commodity that they intend to purchase and anything outside of that it can be deemed ad fraud.
0: In the process of advertising fraud, who gets defrauded? Who suffers from advertising fraud?
2: So mainly advertisers, right? So advertisers that are actually trying to maximize their impact, you know, their marketing dollars, they're being impacted most definitely. But there are also publishers that are trying to write meaningful content and they have to compete and get diluted with garbage publishers that write fake news articles and, you know, don't really have any sort of real meaningful content.
0: Let's say I am a black hat business person on the internet today. I want to build a business around making money from advertising fraud. What would be a good strategy?
2: I think there there's various good strategies. I mean, Shalit can kind of talk about a few. The one strategy that I've seen proliferate is just driving invalid traffic, right? Getting a bunch of ad tags and driving invalid traffic to, let's say, just a fake site that you've created, just to load those simple little banner ads that can really add up. But there's so many ways to monetize ad tech now. You know, you have cost per install, cost per acquisition, you have cost per click, of course, through search ads, but there are many other sort of channels that allow cost per click. Yeah, any action on the web that is deemed monetizable, you can essentially gain with invalid traffic or even just real users that are just unintendingly loading ads in the background. And you see this a lot with the Android ecosystem is a lot of malicious apps will just run in the background and
1: load ads. There's always two sides to an ad fraud operation. One is the actual generation or creation of the invalid traffic. So actually creating those ad requests. And the second part is finding, you know, one place or multiple places to actually monetize those things. And so there's the creation of the website, there is the funneling of traffic to that website or just generation of ad requests. And then there's doing the kind of the black hat business side of getting onboarded into ad exchanges, which is actually where I consider the fraud to be because there's nothing immoral or illegal about running a bunch of ad requests to your own site. I mean, it gets done in the QA process by web developers and app developers uh, developers all the time. But it's the actual pushing of those ad requests into a live ad exchange where marketers are spending money that is the fraudulent part.
0: What percentage of ads today do you think are ultimately viewed by bots or are presented in a way that, I don't know, ad stacking or basically presented in a way that undermines their usefulness like do you have a perspective on how many ads are actually getting viewed by humans or are reaching humans in a meaningful way
2: Yeah, if you bucket in what we quantify as waste, we've seen data that says about just from our own product is from 25% just across the board, ads that never show up is the biggest one, right? Ads that never rendered. You can't have any viewability or any sort of measurable viewability on anything that doesn't render. And then there's the invalid traffic where we've seen five to ten percent, you know, uh, just across the board. And then you get into in app where we've seen upwards of 70% invalid traffic sometimes.
0: Let's talk about some of the the stack of technologies that go into rendering an ad. So let's say I go to the Washington Post.com, an ad loads on the screen. Describe the stack of technologies that have led to that ad being purchased and rendering on the page?
2: Yeah, so Washington Post is a good example. Many of the premium publishers, they started using what's called header bidding. And that's just a set of JavaScript libraries that are on the page. And those uh, JavaScript libraries essentially make requests to the ad tech ecosystem. So those requests first go to what you call supply-side platforms. And these are just servers that uh, a supply-side platform could be something like Pubmatic. That's an example, OpenX. Then they also go to the exchanges, which is like DoubleClick and AOL, like these big exchanges that connect the uh, sellers and the buyers. Those are also just a set of servers. And then those requests go to finally the buying platforms. And buying platforms, these names might sound familiar. There's DB360 owned by Google. There's MediaMath, TradeDesk. These buying platforms essentially run the auction process and this happens in about 50 to 100 milliseconds but there's a lot of room for error and a lot of room for failure and what will happen is these buying platforms based on some simplistic algorithm will you know bid a certain amount uh, what's called a CPM is okay what's the cost per 1000 that I want to actually bid finally when someone wins the page which is washington post finally gets a win like a win notice like hey this this advertiser from this buying platform from this exchange one Here is their ad tag. Here is their uh, creative that you need to render, this HTML and JavaScript. Then the actual page, Washington Post, their JavaScript libraries will have to load this ad tag, and it will then make requests to what's called ad servers. So as you can kind of see, there's this is an oversimplified version of this, but... There are many kind of round-robin requests that go on, and essentially that kind of opens up this avenue for uh, ways to exist because at any one point a system could fail and the ad would never render or it would bug out. So this is a very common thing in ad tech because you can essentially say these systems are duct-taped together.
0: Right. It's like if you were to design a web page that had a bunch of images associated with it and you're making a bunch of asynchronous calls to remote servers that host those images in different places, some of those requests might fail occasionally, and that would lead to the image not being rendered. And then the more hops that are needed between any in of those individual image requests, the it increases the likelihood that one of those is not going to fail, uh, or one of those is not going to work, and that discrete image will not render. And and what is an ad but but an image ultimately? So if we talk about that whole bidding process and the you know the ad is going to get rendered on Washington Post, what about the tooling for knowing that I'm a human? What tools is an organization like Washington Post using to detect that I'm not just a bot or a web scraper?
1: Typically, across major publishers, as well as the advertiser side, most companies will be using a bot detection technology that uses behavioral signals to assess whether a user is displaying human-like behavioral qualities or automated bot-like behavioral qualities. And what ends up happening is there's always a traffic creator who feels threatened by updated bot detection. And what they do is either they'll get access directly to these platforms and start reverse engineering them, or in some cases, they'll just block these technologies from even scanning them when they visit the page.
0: So we have a chicken and egg game between the bot detection companies. Like if I'm Washington Post, maybe I'm purchasing a provider that has a script on my page that is protecting me somehow from these these bots but we have a chicken or a uh, a cat and mouse game between the bot detection companies and the companies who are or the individuals who are developing these bots who are learning to replicate behavior that evades the bot detection software
1: I don't really like the cat and mouse game analogy it's more like a blind lion trying to catch 200 mice. The issue with this like equal back and forth and a cat and mouse example is most of the data sets from any bot detection vendor or technology are going to be sampled. They have very heavy checks that they do and there's uh, they take significantly longer than any programmatic or digital ad transaction. And so to avoid actually hindering ad delivery, they have always sampled impressions or page views that they actually scan and make decisions on. So when it comes to that there's you don't even need to uh, let the bot detection run a hundred percent of the time that's why a lot of these traffic vendors will just block the uh, technologies on the page
0: let's say we're talking about a random game from the app store let's say we're talking about like a animal trivia game so like a trivia game about animals There's some ads that run at the bottom. You know, you see a different ad every time you have a different uh, animal trivia challenge. How do these ads get to me? Is the stack of ad technology on mobile app ad delivery, is that basically the same as what we discussed with Washington Post?
2: It's kind of the same, except with mobile apps, in-app advertising, you just have a, you have a lack of measurability because instead of using JavaScript libraries, they're using two things. They're using SDKs that are bundled with the apps, but the actual ad creatives are loading in web views. So those are componentized versions of Safari and Android Chrome. Unfortunately, those web views don't have the same level of measurability that they do on the web. Like they don't know what app they're landing on and then they don't know where. So there's like kind of a mismatch standard. And also the privileges that the app has is way higher than any web view would possibly have just because the operating system layer. So what you have in in-app is a big kind of, I would say just like a big breach uh, in a sense, because there's no... There's no cross-origin security. The app can do whatever it wants with the web view. can trigger clicks. It can do click injection. It can load ads wherever it wants, you know, in the background and then kind of spoof viewability. There's a ton it can do. And there are steps by Apple and Google to kind of like alleviate this. One is... Kind of standardized viewability which is called intersection Observer. so hey is this truly in view now you have a very native functionality where a web view can say hey i am in view or not but still it doesn't kind of defeat the other problems around uh, especially something that affects install attribution is click injection and click spamming and this is where in-app advertising the whole bidding stack is the same but the problem is the actual client side stack is all problematic
0: What's the perception of mobile app advertising versus desktop display advertising? Like, m- my sense is that people think that mobile app advertising is-, is perhaps somehow safer or is a better way to target users. Am I wrong about that? Like, how, how do this... It depends on who
1: you ask. Yeah, and
2: with mobile, with what happened with mobile is what you'll see on in general is the CPMS. The costs will be higher almost all the time because they think it's just because maybe it's closer to your face. I don't know. Like that's the kind of <laughs> perception that people have is since it's a mobile device that you should bid twice as high for some reason. <laughs>
1: The perception is that this is more captive human attention. Uh, There's not as many distractions on your, you know, three and a half, four inch phone screen as there is on a 15 inch uh, computer monitor. So there's that perceived uh, kind of extra quality factor there. But then there's also a misconception that, well, if it's in app, it actually has to be on somebody's device. Yeah. And what we cover a lot of times in any initial education seminar or even just introductory session is the topic of uh, device emulators that can be run in the cloud.
2: Yeah. And the Android emulator is the kind of the one that sticks out because believe it or not and many Android devs will know this already is uh, you have access to the Play Store so I can install from the Android emulator Facebook, Pandora any sort of app from the Play Store uh, and then just run it and I can run that in the cloud like what's the reason for that I don't know but it's a QA testing tool that everyone uses and you
1: can definitely run invalid traffic in any QA testing tool that's available you can always bet your money that somebody on the ad fraud side is using that to yep. the advantage.
0: so are there tools for both Android and iOS to do emulation in a data center? Only
1: Android.
2: iOS emulator requires the Apple ecosystem. And Apple has made a lot of efforts to actually restrict advertising with ITP, Intelligent Tracking Prevention, They have no sense of what install attribution even is, whereas the Play Store has kind of promoted install attribution now to kind of appease everyone who's buying CPI traffic. But it goes to show you that Apple does not make money through advertising. I mean, even though they're getting into it, the bread and butter revenue is coming from selling products.
0: So earlier, you guys mentioned that term waste, ad waste. So there's waste that can happen as a result of just you know Byzantine failures. You, you you've got a, a distributed trace of requests that you need to to work in order to get your ad rendering on the page. Sometimes servers just fail. You know packets get dropped. It happens, but a lot of this waste seems to be coming from a more deliberate. More perhaps malicious series of events that is actually what we term ad fraud and what I've had you guys on to discuss so much. And, and what makes Method Media Intelligence, the, the company you guys run, so interesting is that you are devoted to, to analyzing ad fraud, uh, studying it, publications around advertising fraud. You've done some work that you know has been has been has helped people ju- who are journalists at BuzzFeed and the New York Times. So you really are this. I think of you as kind of like investigative journalists slash engineering activists slash ruthless capitalists who are building your own business. You know, I, I find you very in- intriguing characters. Can you just tell me a little bit about Method Media Intelligence? What do you do? What is your modus operandi?
1: Yeah. So Method Media Intelligence was founded by Pranit and myself in the beginning of 2017. And one of the first things we did as a company was a few commissioned research reports for clients, basically investigating the effectiveness of ad platforms, buying platforms that they were using. And one of the things that happened soon after that, after a lot of internal research, was our filing of a bot detection patent uh, that focuses on what can be proven objectively about a machine rather than any behavioral signal analysis that we had seen with most spot detection vendors in the past. And the significance of that is that this check uh, Praneet was able to do in five milliseconds. And that led us to eventually create our main flagship product, which is proactive auditing, uh, which is essentially ad monitoring for digital advertisers. Yeah. So making sure that we combine the principles of objective bot detection uh, using the actual device signals and combine that with basic accounting principles of I need to have receipts of every transaction that I engage in. Yeah. And that's what we're working on. Uh, probably, I would say 80% of our time gets spent on uh, working with clients uh, around this product, which essentially it's a merger of a few different ideas that have always been around in ad tech. But this is the first time that advertisers have had a you know, a very low cost, not non-volume based solution to track all of their digital ad transactions and mm-hmm. then also have corresponding quality metrics around each of those transactions. So our goal when we uh we're working on this was how can we move away from only telling advertisers that they had five percent bot traffic or ten percent bot traffic or one percent and actually tell them how much money went to these categories. Yeah. And we do that by collecting our own logs uh, because we can make decisions in five milliseconds on every impression and merging that with the demand side platform logs, which have the price information for every single impression. So now rather than getting a report that says 5% bot traffic, uh, because that doesn't always equal out to 5% of your campaign budget. There are some ad impressions that get sold for $10 CPM, and then there's others that get sold for $190 CPM. So it's not always easy to back out how much money was actually lost to invalid traffic unless you're merging those two data sets.
0: Can we do some jaw-dropping anecdotes now, like... Because I know you guys have worked with some companies who have, I'm not sure, you know, to what degree you can talk about, you know, your particular clients, but just hearing anecdotes from you guys, even anonymized ones, there's just some some insane malfeasance that goes on that, I mean, that's ultimately the reason that drew, what drew me to this topic is just how much money is being stolen by some people and the machinations, the sometimes hilarious, sometimes frightening, sometimes existentially threatening machinations that lead to, to theft. So can you talk just tell us some stories about perhaps clients you've worked with or people you've seen and, and how they have gotten defrauded and and I guess, you know, perhaps what you can do to alleviate that.
1: So, I mean the And this is not, you know, anonymized for any specific client. This is what we see across uh, clients and across the industry in any initial conversations we have as well is just a complete lack of access to data in the first place. You know, forget things about analyzing the data to assess the quality and how horrendous that is. Uh, We've seen top 10 advertisers who their ad vendors will a lot of times just blatantly refuse to share transaction data of where their money was spent. And one of the things that we, I mean, joke about, but also it was very shocking thing to hear from a vendor was if we show you where we're buying, then you can just buy it yourself. Kind of the Motto for having a black box technology business.
0: Another aspect of this ecosystem is that you can end up dealing with the brand. If you talk to the brand, so let's say there's a there's a big brand that's advertising I don't know. Let's like let's say it's uh, Applebee's. Let's say it's Applebee's. You know, Applebee's is is you know running a bunch of ads, and you go to Applebee's and you say, "Hey, Applebee's, you, you've got this fraud going on." And Apple, and even if Applebee's says, you know, yes, we we know that we, we're we're the victim of fraud, you may still have trouble politically getting through the Applebee's organization. Because because you, you encounter different people in the organization and there are actually going to be people in that large organization that may be okay or maybe even be happy that fraud is occurring because it can help. There can be marketers within the giant organization whose KPIs, whose key performance indicators, are actually helped by the fact that there is fraud that is negatively affecting the overall Spend of the company. So tell me about the the difficult politics of working within this this ecosystem.
2: Yeah, we find it very adversarial. I mean, there's a lot of big advertisers want this ecosystem to change and are taking very public stances against it. But then you have advertisers and their marketing teams that at the end of the day it's just analytics and that analytics gets turned out into a report. And that report kind of is tied to a bonus structure and incentive structure. So there are cases where even though the organization as a whole is suffering, the marketing team is not, is they're actually benefiting from invalid traffic or invalid data or lack of data whatsoever. They can actually just start fudging numbers. This happens, and it's slowly kind of peeling away. But yeah, it is shocking to us to see that at the advertiser side. Initially, it was very shocking, but now we're kind of used to it. But the biggest advertisers in the world, they're they take a total complete kind of a hard stance against ad
1: fraud and that's again, as an organization. But what we encountered, you know I guess it's been two years now where we've been facing this is we, when we're approaching this problem, we have to understand that this marketing organization, the entire media, operation is assigned a budget at the beginning of the fiscal year, and they have certain goals that they need to meet with that budget. So if that's a certain number of products sold, a certain number of new customer signups, whatever that is, if you tell a marketing department that you can achieve those goals for less money, that's not as attractive as you can double that performance for the same amount of money. And I think that's, it's an overlooked. Uh, nuance that actually ends up being very important, where marketing departments are not incentivized to save money at the end of the fiscal year. They are focused on getting better results. Does that make sense? That small nuance where saving the marketing department money is not always helpful to them as individuals, they'll get a smaller budget next year. But if you can help them increase the return on that media investment, that's always going to be more attractive.
0: And by the way, when we're talking about results, we don't necessarily mean results in terms of driving customers going to your applebee's restaurant we're talking about results that you can report to your manager and say hey this number of people viewed our ads we drove we drove engagement with applebee's right yeah that's all that means so we did this show with craig silverman recently Craig has been doing great work investigating the fake internet. I, I don't know if you guys, to what degree you guys can talk about this, but but you you worked with Craig some on the on the investigation, right?
2: Yeah, I worked with Craig on the Cheetah Mobile investigation and uh, other investigations as well. Yeah, and we still work together on a few investigations.
0: Okay, so recount what Cheetah Mobile is and why that was worth investigating.
2: So Cheetah Mobile, Craig has a lot more details in the business, but they're a Chinese company that has a lot of apps like utility apps. So you think of just like cleaners, antivirus, utility apps, uh, some flashlight apps. They are a major investor in Kika, Keyboard app. And all these apps are on the Play Store, uh, downloaded by a lot of American citizens. What we found alongside with Kochava was... They were running a lot of ads in the background. They were actually gaming install attributions, so actually making money through that. But then there was some other stuff that we found that, you know, just why would an app like a flashlight app need so many permissions or, you know, what else is it kind of logging and where is that information going? We focused more on the sort of advertising angle, but now it kind of is becoming apparent that many apps in the Play Store, you can't even find the business details of the developers, and they have 50 million installs. It's incredible to find a selfie app that has so many installs and, you know, has so many permissions, and Google kind of doesn't really know about it.
0: So, the example of a flashlight app, you know, you open it up, you're just using your phone as a flashlight and then in the background it's loading ads and uh, ostensibly would be showing you those ads but you might not even see the ads rendered on your screen they're just like hidden from you
2: not only that why does a flashlight app need to load ads i mean obviously you're pointing something you're you're looking for something and you're probably not looking at your phone because you're looking for something else <laughs> using the flashlight so are just common sense things that advertisers sometimes don't get or just people that are buying all these things don't get is why does a utility app need ads? Like if it's supposed to be just be keeping you safe and everything, like it just yeah. runs in the
1: background. But that's the
2: problem. It runs in the background and it runs persistently.
1: Yeah. The, you know, just these kind of philosophical things of uh, media buyers need to realize that buying ad impressions on a flashlight app or a meditation app does not make any logical sense.
0: And the other thing about the Cheetah Mobile story that was so shocking was the idea that you could have these apps that not only are they stealing advertiser money by rendering ads that nobody is looking at, they're also potentially funneling information that is basically surveillance data on U.S. citizens in order to envelop U.S. citizens in the same kind of dragnet surveillance information that is this just the norm across Chinese internet users. Am I getting it right? Is that That's kind of the allegation that Craig yeah. took,
2: right? I mean, that's the implication there because of the permission level that they have, right? They can record your voice, read SMS. Uh, they can get access to your credential information, your account information. I mean, it's all an open game.
0: And to what degree has Google cracked down on this or or either before or after this great long form journalism piece on Cheetah Mobile came out?
2: What Google has done is they they've responded to these allegations and actually they what they did was I believe they kicked out a few of those apps. But then something changed with those apps and they let them back in. So it's kind of been we'll just kind of wait till it disappears
0: Do you guys get the sense that Google is essentially overwhelmed by the challenges of the app store?
2: No. No, because then you have this other company, Apple, that does not have as many issues as them when it comes to this. They still have issues, but not as much as the Android
0: ecosystem. So why aren't they putting more limitations on their ecosystem?
1: Apple doesn't own an ad exchange where the banners from the malicious apps will get monetized, potentially. Yeah, plain and simple.
0: So you're suggesting that there is a profit motive that drives Google to indirectly encourage advertising fraud
1: it's not that they encourage it there is no financial or reputational punishment that gets put on them for having these things around yeah it's not that they're encouraging it i mean that would be a pretty big scandal (laughs) yeah you know if they were making any suggestions that hey if you want to be in the play store make sure you add these extra ad units it's just that there's no harmful financial impact to them from having this in there
0: I'm not sure I see the line between encouraging behavior and opening up a casino where the incentives you know, encourage you. It, it's
1: active versus passive, right? It's, yeah. They're not encouraging it, but they're not doing everything in their power to discourage it.
0: So let's let's say I open a casino. It's Let, let's say I open a casino. It's slightly off the Las Vegas strip. It's sort of like you know you can't see it as well. It's really boring. It's like the most boring looking casino in the world. There's no flashing lights It basically looks like maybe like a a doctor's waiting room, like it's that level of boredom. But you go in and there are some games and the games like actually have really good returns. And you go in there and you have to gamble, but it's like you actually have 60% chance of, of winning money. And so it's like, wow, yeah, you just go into this somewhat boring casino and it's, you know, you might lose, but most of the time you actually win. I mean, to me, that's essentially what the advertising ecosystem is, is it's like this casino where it's kind of boring, it's kind of technical, like most people don't really care about it. But the people who go there, they're like, this is like just the best casino ever. I mean, is is that a fair analogy? I would say
2: so because when you compare it to a boring casino that isn't kind of uh, known by a lot of people, but it makes a lot of money. The, when you get to ad tech, a lot of people are very protective of this casino. Like they would be, they would yeah. tell everyone else that visits that, "Hey, there's no money in here. Go away. Like there's it's just a boring doctor's office." And then they would try to keep this right. all amongst themselves.
0: And here's the thing is like the ultimately the operator of that boring casino is, is is responsible for it. Look, I and I say this every time I love Google. I'm I'm complete, completely in love with Google. I'm a, I'm a tech. I'm so pro tech, but it's just, you know, not to throw stones. It's just like this is a casino that's basically operated by Google. It's, I, I just find it hilarious that for all of the criticism that Google gets Nobody really focuses on, on the issue that makes Google money.
2: Exactly. Yeah. yeah, this is a big thing because Google, their public images, you know, they do a lot of projects. They have, like, so many research initiatives and everything, and those are great. They have DeepMind, which takes everyone's hearts. And, you know, the, the, the research that DeepMind comes up with is great. But then what funds all that is AdWords, DoubleClick, AdSense, like all the advertising products. And one might say that, hey, they have GCP and GCP is kind of come up and coming as like a revenue stream. It's nowhere close to Amazon or Microsoft. So it's mainly the advertising. And, yeah, it's kind of this secretive kind of society that is just funding Google. And you'll even talk to people like Google and they're like, oh, yeah, the ad products. What do they do? Like, well, yeah, they they have very little knowledge of them.
0: So, but let's take the generous case towards Google. This is their business. They have to do it. So I get it. Like Apple doesn't have to do this. So Apple's hands are completely clean. Maybe it's just such that like, this is a really hard problem. Maybe Google is trying to develop a a completely honest ad ecosystem. What's the, the most generous case towards Google?
2: Yeah. So if we were to take the actual generous case, like are they actually trying and is there a lot of effort around this? There are teams at Google that, you know, do monitor traffic quality. There's an immense amount of traffic that goes through AdWords and double click in the entire ecosystem. The only thing is they're not very open with other sets of data. The problem is you'll, you can go to double click and say, hey, I found all this invalid traffic, give me my money back. And they'll be like, okay, well, we'll give you some make goods and we'll give you this much much amount of money. And it's like, this is how much we found without actually without actually kind of disclosing, okay, this is what our methodology was and this is why we think this is so. And then they'll claw that back from publishers. And there might be publishers that, you know, do deserve that money, but Google will take it and just keep it in the exchange. So a lot of times Google is kind of pocketing the kind of difference and the actual make good that they decide uh, is deemed necessary. The reason they can do this is at any point in the advertising, programmatic advertising ecosystem, you have to touch Google. There is the DFP service, which is used by publishers. That's you know, that's just their ad server. Like that's what they have to use across the board. There's the double click. Click ad exchange. Everything goes through the double click ad exchange, and then finally, a lot of people, a lot of big advertisers use DV three hundred and sixty. And that if if they're using a bidder that's not DV three hundred and sixty, it's most likely going through double click anyways because it connects to the exchange. But once you're using DV three hundred and sixty, you have Google at every point, and they know what's going on, or they can. you know, sometimes tell there's just so much data to analyze. No advertiser can really, really essentially tell what, what is going on. So, I mean, the silo is just not in the teams, it's also in the data. And that's been one of the main problems with Google. And then, you know, their their response is basically, "Well, what are you going to do? Spend on the other monopoly, which is Facebook? Like, there's a duop. There, that's the reason they call it a duopoly, is because you can't escape Google on the open internet. They'll basically they know that you're you're not just going to go to some other small exchange or something. It'll always touch Google at the end.
0: Yeah. And, and how does the Facebook ad buying process? Contrast is it is it any cleaner? How does it compare to the uh, doctor's office casino? What's the what's the uh, mirror analogy for Facebook? It's
1: closed. Uh, it does not, you know, it's not. It's a speakeasy. There's not. Yeah. It's a speakeasy. It's a speakeasy. So. As is. The speakeasy where you go in blindfolded. Yes. And <laughs> and they tell you how many drinks you have. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So I guess on Facebook, do we have any reason to believe that there are more or less invalid traffic or I guess wasteful traffic expenditures?
1: I can't go into too much detail here. My thing that I've said about Facebook for a long time now is there's a very simple way for them to address the issue of fake profiles is they can very easily set up a group of people internally that goes out and buys followers and likes from all of these services mm-hmm. that sell it on a like massive scale and use that to constantly remove, you know, whatever accounts do that. I mean, it's just setting up a honeypot uh, type situation. I don't think that the problem is too hard to address within Facebook because it is closed. It's much more difficult on the open web.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. So, you know, not to take words out of your mouth, but the environment is massively inflated by people who are creating accounts, selling fake follows, fake likes, and, uh, you know, if, if they really wanted to shut that stuff down more aggressively, they certainly could take steps. All your words, I mean, my words, not yours. Are any of these dynamics changing? Like, any of the dynamics of ad tech changing? Is anything getting better? Anything significantly different?
2: No, things are getting worse primarily because there are other formats coming around that limit measurability. You look at OTT and people are crazy about OTT and we actually What is OTT? Uh, have a, OTT is over the top. So like connected TV, Roku, Chromecast, <laughs> yeah. all these yeah, all these connected TV devices. You now have a programmatic kind of sense in them and they can load the same video ads that you traditionally got on your desktop. But now everyone watches Hulu on, you know, Roku or Chromecast or something or Apple TV. So we're going to load ads there the problem is the measure measurable kind of quality has just gotten down there's very limited measurement you can do you don't have access to the same apis and sdks uh, that you did on the web so people just have to blindly trust also it's very very expensive because they've basically taken a tv kind of look at it is hey this is a 1080p screen you're going to pay a $100 for this right now and it's juiced up the price And whenever you get lack of measurability, uh, just lack of, you know, access to data, just obscurity, like that's a recipe for fraud. And if you look at the stat, uh, Forbes actually had a good stat was a quote from a guy who said within one year, the request volume went up by 20 times for OTT. So everyone has been going there. And what's also funny is since you compare it to TV, you would assume that there was just like channels like ESPN, NBC, and CBS, and et cetera, and just that. There are random OTT channels, like nothing like TV where you have uh, yeah. random channels, like just like apps. There's millions of them. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that people aren't, they're watching one channel or two channels. Like they're not watching all these other channels. Yeah.
0: So it's like the infomercials channel or like, what, what, have you seen Any of your like particularly weird channels?
2: Yeah, like just
1: for its foreign
2: channels or as far as the advertiser knows, but
1: here's the problem is as far as the advertiser knows, once they've spent that money, it could have just been the blank screen channel. Yeah. (laughs) You have no way to where, like, to verify, like, what type of content was this before or after? And they're buying it with the expectations of how TV makes an impact on viewers, TV ads, uh, and not taking into account that this can be manipulated and counterfeited the same way that any open web page you hmm
0: and again just just to get into the politics of an organization who is buying this kind of traffic uh, a little bit the account manager who is buying this traffic still gets to say to their to their manager, Hey, I you know, I bought OTT traffic. It's the cutting edge thing. We got this number of views and we we aired the toothpaste ad or the restaurant ad and the manager of that account manager is completely satisfied cuz they get to go to their manager and say, "Hey, you know, my underlings reported a uh, 50% boost in, you know, views and therefore we'll probably see, you know, in 6 months that there's going to be a lot more toothpaste sold." And you just have this chain of hierarchical middle managers that are all satisfied because these numbers that are ultimately just useless are making them look look good enough.
2: Yeah, and you also have to consider that it's not just like an account manager. It's someone at the agency. Right. So many big advertisers, many advertisers have agencies and it's the agency that has no kind of affiliation with the advertiser whatsoever and has no, I mean, let's be honest, they don't care if you sell more Gillette or more cars like they just want to run their advertising and get the numbers. So you have them internally kind of say, okay, like this is, you know, account manager for a certain big advertiser. Like this is what we saw on this channel. Great. They'll go to their manager. Their manager will give a thumbs up. And all the way to the top, they'll be like, all right, great, this account will be happy because we got 50%, uh, you know, views from this channel and it kind of increased looks good.
1: our reach by 50%.
2: Yeah. And then they'll go back to the marketing team and give them a slide deck and everything And the marketing team. If they're, you know, suspicious enough, will be like, well, can you actually show me the data? And then that's where the agency will start scrambling and actually start getting the data or the marketing team will be like, you know what, check the box and then I'll go to my higher ups.
0: What's the most disturbing thing that each of you has learned about ad tech in the last year?
2: I think for me, it's actually not a tech thing. There's all these tech things that come up like with the in-app advertising and all the broken measurement and the bugs and everything. It's it's not tech related. It's the kind of relationships between an advertiser and who they work with and how much money can just disappear without any tech involved at all.
0: Like billing, like billing related yeah. stuff. Yeah.
1: Yes. And verification of build amount versus goods and services delivered is very disconnected. Oh
0: man, it, it makes you wonder about like hospital bills and stuff like that. I'm sure you know. Not to go down a separate rabbit hole, but you guys unfortunately moved out to the big city and left me behind in uh, you know in in small town San Francisco. So you've you've struck out to the big city, New York to build out Method Media Intelligence.
1: How's that going? Going well. We are settled into New York now. We got some office space. We have two hires that we're very excited about that are going to be starting in the next few weeks. We have a few advisors that, you know, we're going through the process of onboarding uh, that are going to be strategic advisors just in terms of kind of evangelizing the philosophy that we have as well as the product. And then, yeah, I mean, it's... We were traveling to New York from San Francisco almost once a month anyways. So this just gives us a lot more time to be closer to where most of the large marketing organizations uh, have a home base of some sort.
0: So what's the difference between the New York and the San Francisco ad tech ecosystems?
1: New York is most of ad tech. San Francisco is Google and Facebook and a few small
2: places. Yeah, it's almost funny because... You think of the duopoly size, there's more ad tech in San Francisco than there will ever be in New York. But it just feels more advertising related here just because the, you know, the ad industry started in Madison Avenue and everything. This I is mean,
1: where the checks get cut. Yeah.
2: So this is where a lot of the agencies have big offices and just the media industry is like very prolific here, but it's. It's funny to think just in San Francisco while we were there, we're just surrounded by tech, you know, SaaS, everything. But the two biggest ad tech firms are in the Bay Area.
0: How are you guys playing to scale Method Media Intelligence? Because when when you started, when when I was just hanging out with you guys, it was very much a, it felt like a consultative business, very good consultative business, but eventually you develop this, these technology solutions around running tests. You know, you can detect whether ad impressions are viewed by a user who has a GPU. So this is actually a technology solution that you, be, you, were, you were able to build and you have customers for it. What's the vision for scaling MMI?
1: So the kind of main metric we're looking at internally is, how much money are we protecting for our clients? Uh, and the way we're looking at growth and scale is how do we make that number as big as possible in terms of, and this is related to how we price because we didn't do volume based pricing in terms of how many impressions uh, an advertiser purchases. We do it based on the size of their budget. So we do it for very large advertisers on, you know, somewhere around one to three percent of their budget, and that's knowing that the waste impact that we see across the board in these exchanges and across the web is 25%. So what we want to do is, you know, right? I think this year's estimate is somewhere close to 60 or 65 billion to be spent just on programmatic advertising. We want to monitor as much digital media spend as possible. And that starts with going after the largest advertisers in the space.
0: All right. uh, Final question. We've talked about the duopoly of Google and Facebook. Amazon is getting into the ad stack quite heavily. How would you characterize Amazon in contrast to Facebook and Google?
2: So since it's kind of a tertiary business for them, and it's growing rapidly, they have a lot more leverage that's coming up. And they're building ad products within AWS that facilitate this. So think of like the uh, there's a product called AWS Media Tailor that allows server side stitching of ads. That's an example. But yeah, they're taking it very seriously. I mean, a- Amazon Retail and AWS are the big money makers, so they can kind of be very exploratory. But that gives them considerable leverage on advertisers because they can just say, "Hey, like this is kind of a third kind of go at at it for us." So you'll play by our, our rules, unlike Google and Facebook, where they do have to play the song and
0: dance. Okay, guys. Well, always a pleasure to talk to you. I'll let you go. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily once again and for doing interesting work. Yeah, thanks, Thanks. Jeff.
2: Wow.